Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. Um, we have a question that we're going to start with um, and uh, might take up the whole program. If not, we have some other things to talk about. Um, but a question from one of our viewers uh, recently was, can you speak on what happened to demon possession? Uh, I don't know how to answer that question adequately. Um, so that's what we're going to try to answer from, from the scripture. Um, there are a number of different things that we could talk about and go. And so, I don't know, I kind of get the discussion started because I think this is an important place to start in this discussion. In uh, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, when Paul is kind of wrapping up his letter in Ephesians 6 in verse 10, uh, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And then he goes on to outline and talk about what the armor of God is, how that's effective and helpful for us in our war. But Paul mentions uh, a very real threat in Ephesians chapter 6. And anything that we say today, there are, there are things that we don't know. There are things that aren't revealed to us. We're going to try to answer as best we can from scripture. Um, but one thing that we need to understand is there is a real spiritual threat against us, uh, against our souls that wants to destroy us, that wants to separate us from the Lord. Uh, and the Lord has equipped us and given us the tools and the armor that we need to be able to war against that and fight against that. But there, there is a threat what specifically that is and how that actually looks. Maybe we'll be able to discuss in more detail, but um, we need to not just push Satan away like he's some kind of silly, uh, you know, pointy-tailed guy that maybe exists, maybe doesn't exist, or uh, or that sort of thing. The devil is real. The devil is is a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he may devour um, and, and should be at least, I don't know if respected is the right word, but acknowledged uh, as, as a threat. Um, one that we can defeat with the Lord's help, but, but is a very real threat. Um, so that's kind of my starting thought with that. What do you, where do you guys want to go with this discussion? Or do you have anything to say about that? Well, let's just underscore uh, kind of what you just said about Satan himself. And of course, the question is about demon possession, which is in the cat kind of the category. Uh, like I, I would suspect that demons unclean spirits may be what's referred to when jesus says hell is prepared for the devil and his angels i would suspect that might be who those were but you alluded to this passage let's just read it it's in first peter chapter five about the devil be sober be watchful your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour whom withstand steadfast in your faith and james also gives some real practical advice about that he says draw near to god and he'll draw near to you and what does james say about the devil in that text? he'll flee yeah resist the devil and he'll flee from you so that's the devil and now more to the question about these demons unclean spirits so first maybe we can talk about just um demon possession in the scripture um what are some things that you guys want to talk about with like in the gospels uh different things that happened their purpose of why they happened what what was illustrated in some of the the demonic activity in jesus's day good Justin. well can we can we actually take a step back um scott made a helpful point there's there are demons there are the devil's angels and then unclean spirits 
Uh, and we see the work of unclean spirits even before Jesus. Uh, I think sometimes I, I forget that. Uh, Saul, King Saul, when he um, became disobedient to the Lord, it says in 1 Samuel 16, verse 14, that the spirit of the Lord left him and uh, a spirit uh, afflicted him from the Lord. And then there are other occasions where you have like a lying spirit in First Kings uh, that God actually uh, allows to go and directs that that unclean spirit to go um, to to be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets that are uh, against Ahab. So there, there are some influences of these demonic forces even prior to Jesus' day. But then we see this sort of what looks like a a large concentration of them really active during Jesus's day. And I'm not sure why that is, why suddenly they're very, very active, where it seems like before they weren't, or maybe it's that they were active all along. Uh, we just didn't know to identify that's the demons at work. Um, because when, when you read a passage like 1 Peter 5 or in James, it says resist the devil. I don't, I don't know too often that I'm actively thinking in this moment against temptation, I'm actually in this wrestling match with the devil. I'm resisting him. Uh, but the Bible teaches that there is a person actively trying to get me to fall and to stumble. Uh, and so to identify that sometimes Satan's working and we don't recognize it. Um, but the Bible does, does give him uh, credit for that, if you will. I don't know if that makes sense or not. Yeah. One of the difficulties with this topic is that while it does show up in the Bible a lot of times, and in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there, there's still not a lot of detail. And so that's that's what makes it complicated, is that we see that the devil is active, we see that there are spirits that were active, but we don't get a lot of descriptions um, that tell us what the limits are. They will be active in this way, and they will not be active in another way. And because of uh, because there are not a lot of descriptions and rules so that we can understand, um, it's so easy to tend towards one or the other direction of saying, of seeing devils everywhere you look in a frowning face, that must be a person who's influenced by the devil, or refusing to see the devil anywhere. And, and we need to, um, I think both of those extremes are an attempt to just grab control of the situation and say, this must be the devil or there must not be a devil. The Bible just doesn't make it super clear, but he says the devil is um, prowling around trying to get at us. Um, if the book of Ephesians talks a lot about, uh, not just at the end in chapter six, that uh, we have this cosmic war against whatever, the, the demons or the devil himself. In Ephesians chapter three, it talks about how um, God uses the church itself to proclaim his power in the heavenly places and in the heavenlies. And I don't know, well, well who is that? Who does God need to proclaim himself to and, and, and have this seeming like this boastful uh, showing of power? I would imagine that's, again, part of that spiritual battle. And so um, whatever it is, it's real. And God uh, warns us about it. And God actually involves us in it in some way. Do we, do we see just in the Gospels, I think, back to the question that was asked, um, you know, Matthew 4 has, I think, one of the first occasions just for the demon possession. Uh, this one's not specific, but it says in Matthew 4, verse 23, 
that Jesus, this is after he's uh, been baptized by John, he spent some time uh, in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And in verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. One of the interesting things about demon possession in the, the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, is that it's usually accompanied by physical uh, detrimental effects. They're paralytic. They have epileptic shocks. Uh, they may be mute or deaf. Um, there's something that is attached to that. And that's not to say that everyone has a physical sickness is afflicted by a demon, they seem to recognize this is a different kind of sickness. It's just these other sicknesses that come mm -hmm. So the demons would work in these spiritual ways that had physical consequences attached to them. But it was different than just here's someone who's lame, here's someone who's blind. Not every blind person needed to be uh, exercised. Is that the right, right word? Yeah. I'm just mm -hmm. using these words. Um, but, <laughs> but they didn't need to cast out a demon out of every deaf person out of every new person, but there were some who were afflicted and that was the way it uh, demonstrated itself. That, that's a really good point because then that also demonstrates that demon possession is not some superstitious reaction to blindness. There's blindness and then here's blindness that's somehow connected to someone who has a demon. The, the, the people in those experiences were differentiating and I don't know what that differentiation looks like. It, it's not described in the text. But they knew there was a difference. Um, in, in Mark chapter 9, I think it is, the, 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 the boy who's had a demon from his youth and how it would cause him to go, seemingly like go into seizures and fits and this, the demon would try to throw him into the fire. The, the way that everyone's talking about it and even Jesus himself responds to, you know, this can only be removed by prayer. This was a demon. This wasn't just a medical condition. Uh, so what? How it looks like to me, I don't know, living today, but it was clear um, in, in the times that these events were happening that there was a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one interesting thing um, that I want to talk about and get your guys' thoughts on is um, in Luke or Matthew chapter 12. Um, so we've kind of established there, there was this demonic activity. Um, they caused various different effects on uh, the, the person that was possessed. Uh, in Matthew chapter 12, there's a demon-possessed man who the demon calls him to be blind and mute. Uh, and he's brought to Jesus in Matthew 12, verse 22. Uh, and Jesus heals him. And that man saw and spoke. And then all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, that the uh, prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So they kind of um, take a really extreme view and say, Jesus has power over demons because he is a demon or he represents the, the, the demonic forces or is sent by Satan or whatever really strange uh, conclusion that they come to. And so Jesus responds to that. And he has, I think, a really helpful thing to illustrate and show of what Jesus's work was in casting out demons. And I want to connect this to a passage in Colossians also, but in Matthew 12, verse 25, uh, it says, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. 
Um, fun fact, that was Jesus that said that, not Abraham Lincoln. Um, I've heard people refer that to Abraham Lincoln, but original to Jesus, it seems like. Uh, verse 26, and if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, then by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus kind of tears their thought process apart. It doesn't make any sense. Why would Satan attack himself? If he's doing that, he's not going to last very long. I'm doing this by the spirit of God. And if I'm doing it by the spirit of God, then you've got some really important things to think about. God's kingdom is here. It's come upon you. That needs to change your life, your thought process, how you think about me. But then he gives this word picture that I want to get to. In verse 29, he says, or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder the house. Um, so Jesus, it looks to me like what he's saying is him casting out demons is him disarming or, or binding or tying up Satan and his power so that he can take what was Satan's and get it for himself. The thing that was Satan's were those that were captive under Satan. And Paul seems to communicate that same idea in Colossians chapter 2. Um, in Colossians 2 and verse 15, um, really verse, uh, we'll say verse 14 and 15. Um, he was canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So Paul mentions this idea in Christ, in his, in his, the action on the cross, in his work, he is able to disarm the rulers and authorities uh, and, and put them to open shame. It looks like that that's the thing that Jesus is, is illustrating and showing that his work is doing, disarming, taking the power from Satan and delivering people to God. And I think that's connected with his message in Matthew 12. Uh, go ahead, Justin. Let me just, in, uh, I want you to continue what you're saying. Let me just answer this too. I think he references that in Colossians 1 and verse 13 and 14 as well. Where he says that uh, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us the kingdom of his beloved son, and then we have redemption of forgiveness of sins. So same idea, maybe worry a little differently, but I think you're right on from Matthew 12. Yeah, so, so that seems to be like the big point that Jesus is trying to illustrate what he's doing in his work. While there is this really kind of terrifying influence that Satan has had over the world uh, and that he has over, over people with his, his followers, his demons, his angels, whatever word we want to put on that, um, Jesus and his work and his power is actively disarming that, getting rid of that, binding that, whatever kind of word you want to put on that. Um, and he's illustrating that through his capability and his authority to cast out the demons. Um, so I think that that's an important thing for us to realize. This is, it, there looks to be like a slowing to a stop of the influence that Satan has over people through the work of Christ. Um, so I don't know. What do you guys think about that in Matthew 12? Or do you have anything else you want to say concerning that? There's kind of an interesting thing that's happening here too in Matthew 12. He says, by whom do you, this is verse 27, by whom do your sons cast them out? Mm -hmm. um, later in Acts 19, we're going to see the sons of Sceva, who weren't followers of Jesus, but they were trying to evoke the name of Jesus and casting out demons. So during this time, it was like even prior to this, uh, prior to Jesus casting out demons, the Jews recognized demons are a problem. We've got to do something about them. Um, and then later, even after Jesus is raised from the dead and sends him to heaven, 
there's still a problem with demons. Uh, but I, I like this idea that Satan has ramped up his power and his influence to the point of actually possessing people. And, and now Jesus is putting a stop to that, bringing it to a slow, to a slow stop. Uh, I think that makes sense. Um, we still see it some, you know, again, in Acts 19. Uh, but I don't know that we see it. Like, it's, it's not really talked about much beyond that. Like, it's not something that Paul instructs Timothy on or instructs Titus on. Um, you know, an absence of evidence doesn't mean there's evidence of absence, but it, it seems like there's not much of it going on afterward. Mm -hmm. A couple of observations also, um, just term generally. Sometimes we uh, assume demon possession to involve maybe evil behavior on the part of a person. But sometimes people in the Bible that were afflicted with an unclean spirit or a demon, uh, as noted, were mute or, you know, um, some physical problem. Uh, and then you do have a couple of more what we tend to think of as demon possession things. Uh, the guy in the caves, you know, that's they kept trying to chain him and he was just kind of out of his mind. And then there was the girl that had the spirit of divination. Um, another observation is unclean spirit and demon. It's two different phrases. Unclean spirit is a word for unclean and then pneuma, spirit, right? Same word as our spirit or the Holy Spirit or an unclean spirit. And then there's another word, uh, diamond, which is the word for demon, but they're used interchangeably. Uh, in Mark chapter five, uh, when you have the unclean spirits cast out, then they enter into the pigs. The text goes back and forth referring to them as either unclean spirits or demons. That's helpful. Yeah, that's really helpful. So that, that would mean then that you have, when you have the unclean spirits in the Old Testament, um, it, it is that's demon possession of some form too, correct? Uh, I, I would think so. Uh, it, it, it might not always be possession. There may be, sometimes there may be things that are influence and sometimes possession. Mm -hmm. But possession in the New Testament, sometimes we see them with like weird abilities like strength or uh, the, the uh, soothsaying girl. Uh, but other times it's physical ailments which is Dan already pointed out that, that not everything was attributed to demons. So when Jesus sent out the apostles, he gave them the power to heal the sick and cast out unclean spirits or demons. Uh, and there was some overlapping in that sometimes, sometimes the unclean spirit caused an illness, but not every illness was caused by an unclean spirit. Uh, when Jesus healed the blind man in John 9, there's no mention of any unclean spirit or demon involved. It's, it's just blindness. Uh, but sometimes there's seizures caused by a demon in the text or mutinous. Go ahead. That just brings up a question, and we've talked about this prior to this discussion, but, but in Luke 10, 17, uh, you know, Jesus had given this, this power to his apostles, the 12 earlier, now he gives it in 72. They have power uh, to cast out demons. They, they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then in Luke 10, 18, 
he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he talks about the authority that he's given them over these things. Um, I guess I have a couple of questions about this. Um, one, verse 18, does this connect in some way to Revelation 12, where Satan is, is there's no longer a place for him found in heaven. And it's in connection with Jesus's blood. Uh, now that he has sacrificed himself, uh, Satan, as the accuser, no longer has a place in heaven to accuse God's people. Is, is that what's happening here? Yeah, I, I think it is related. So let's talk for just a minute about Satan's geography. Uh, now, since we're talking about spiritual realms, don't take this too literally. Sure. sure. Um, in the Old Testament, so Jesus says, I see Satan falling from heaven. Revelation 12 is, hey, he's cast down out of heaven, but watch out, earth. Uh, right. Does that mean that there was no sin or temptation on her before the resurrection sense of Jesus? No. But let's go back just real quickly. In the book of Job, geographically speaking, uh, where do we see uh, Satan? He had before come from walking to and fro on earth. Now he's before the Lord. Yeah, and he's before the Lord. And he is an accuser of the brethren. That's what he's wanting to do. He's wanting to accuse Job. And he's assuming if you take away his blessings, Job will curse you to his face. He's the accuser of the brethren. So we see him up here being able to be in the heavenlies. Then after Jesus has conquered physical, spiritual death and physical death, and Satan no more has a place in the heavens, now he's down on earth. And he's angry he didn't get to destroy the Messiah, so he goes after the, his believers. And he raises up two beasts. You got a sea beast and an earth beast. In Revelation 19, what happens to both beasts? Thrown into the lake of fire. And is the dragon thrown into the lake of fire? No. Yeah. yeah. But he's restrained in the abyss, in the chain. But he's not cast into the lake of fire. After the thousand years that restraint is lifted, he starts doing some stuff again. And then this time, at the end of time, at judgment, he's cast into the lake of fire where the beasts were are, already were. Now, that doesn't mean that when he was in heaven, there was not sinful influence on earth. I mean, he's in the garden, you know, tempting Eve. Um, but you, you see these... The, he, he has an argument to be made, and he's the accuser of the brethren, and he loses that, and he's thrown out by Michael and his angels, and then he's attacking down here in a very vicious way where he's turned the world upside down, and Christians can be forgiven if they will worship Caesar as God, etc. Um, then he's restrained, then he's come loose again, and then finally cast in. But I think maybe we learned something here about the idea of restraint. Um, in Job, does God put some restraints on Satan? Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, in the pit, are there some restraints? Uh, and then, as Jonathan mentioned before, um, Jesus, when he starts, when he's casting out demons, he says, if you're going to deal with this, take away the strong man's stuff, first you tie him up. And so there's a conquering of Satan going on. It doesn't mean that 
he's still not a roaring lion that we need to, you know, be sober and watchful for and resist in our faith. But there are some restraints, and I believe in there, he's defeated in ways. My suspicion is that the demonic possession that was uh, described so much in the New Testament is perhaps something that was allowed at that time for Jesus to be able to conquer and show his power over it and gave the apostles to be able to do that. My suspicion is that that same level of um, demon possession is not what's being allowed at this time. That's an interesting idea. Uh, go ahead, John. I was going to say, and and even in Luke chapter 10, it's, it's kind of interesting, Jesus's response in Luke 10, you've got these guys that come back and they say, Jesus, we're able to, we're able to throw the, the demons out. This is great. And they're celebrating. And Jesus kind of says um, at the end, uh, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but instead rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus almost kind of says at the end of it, don't worry about that. <laughs> don't worry about the spirits. Don't worry about that. You worry about your salvation and you, you and God, and that, that you have salvation and your names are written in the book of heaven. The, the spirits are, they're taken care of <laughs> is kind of the, the vibe that Jesus gives a little bit, even in Luke 10. Yeah, and that, that fits with this picture um, with with miracles, right? Um, where you know, the, the point wasn't the miracles, the point wasn't speaking in tongues or healing the sick. It was that that power uh, attested to the power of the gospel. The Romans 1.16 says that the gospel is the power of God. Um, it, it's not the miraculous power that's really God flexing his muscles so much. It is, it is grace, it is mercy, it is is being just to forgive that demonstrates the power of God. But we, because we're kind of fixated on the temporary and the material, God is patient to show us, well, well, look, here's a taste of that kind of power in the miraculous. But once we see it, then we don't we don't need that anymore. So I think Scott's point that you know perhaps God God lengthened the leash of Satan a little bit, gave him a little more authority or time so that Jesus can demonstrate his power over that. that. That fits well. Which doesn't mean that there aren't. Uh, uh, Justin, earlier you mentioned a text about doctrines of demons. And there's the passage in First yes. John 4 where it says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Uh, and I'm not going to quote it right. Somebody, somebody else remembers how to quote it, or I'll be there in a second. First uh, John chapter four, verse one: Beloved, believe not every spirit, but prove the spirits whether they are God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And then it talks about from the spirit of the Antichrist, which is not necessarily the same thing, but it's it's, it's again uh, promoted, uh, it's promoting evil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe, maybe we don't see demon possession then today, but we still see influences, like we said. First Timothy 4 talks about doctrine of demons. Uh, James chapter 3 talks about this wisdom is not from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Mm -hmm. uh, so so you know, perhaps we could say this, that demons are still active today, but we don't need the power to cast them out. What we need is the truth of God that, that shows that's a false teaching. That's not of God. That's of the devil. And, and, and Paul speaks 
very specifically to that idea in first Corinthians chapter 10, when there's the long discussion about, is it okay if I have dinner at the idol's house? And there's a long discussion about the fact that the idol doesn't exist. It, I mean, the thing exists, that big piece of carved metal or wood or stone is literally there, but the idol isn't anything. He says, 1 Corinthians 10, 19, what do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. And for a long time, Christians took a strong view of every false idol isn't just an imagined God, um, that that is some manifestation of a demon. Um, and, and I don't know if that's exactly what Paul was getting at, but the, the spiritual reaction that that's creating in you is, I think, what Paul is trying to get us to realize. All of these created desires, all of these, uh, whether it's an idol and the old sense of bowing down to a piece of wood, or the way a lot of people talk about it today, if your idol is your politics, if your idol is your money, if your idol is your sports, the way that people bow down to those things, all of those created um, objects that are not divine and from God, when we worship them, when we bow down to them and revere them, we are bowing down to, if not a, if not an act, you know, I don't, if not an actual demon itself, the sentiment, the 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 image that Paul is giving us there is supposed to really shock us out from these as James calls it, these these things that are from this lower world, the things that are of demons. Somebody mentions the kind of two ditches of getting too fascinated by this stuff or ignoring it too much. C.S. Lewis had a quote when something like this, uh, it's just, I'm not going to get it right, but it, it was that same general jest that um, it's not good to give too much thought nor too little thought to devils or, or something. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. from his book, See, uh, Screw Tape Letters, which is a really, really interesting read. Um, but there's, uh, and I said that and then I forgot the point I wanted to make. So somebody else go ahead. To Dan's reference to 1 Corinthians 10, um, it almost seems as though Paul is is revealing something that Christians didn't know at the time. That behind these these uh, these idols, and maybe now we should say ideologies, um, are demonic influences. Um, that, that's an ancient idea. First Corinthians ten is referenced back to Deuteronomy thirty two seventeen, or Psalm one hundred six, for example. Psalm one hundred six verse thirty seven says of God's people that they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to the demons. I don't think the, the Hebrews thought, oh, yeah, there are these demons and we'll sacrifice our children to them. I mean, sacrificing children is bad enough, but they thought those were worthy gods of worship. Um, but there's either God or there, there are these demonic forces. It's the kingdom of light or it's the kingdom of darkness. And so we, we fall prey to these spiritual forces that maybe we don't recognize. And, and we need to, I think it makes sin more insidious. It helps us to see just how dark and deep the, the hole goes when we're talking about sin. Scott? I remember now what I was going to say. On the side of being overly uh, invested in it is a superstitious take on it. Uh, years ago, Biblical Archaeology Review uh, 
there was some type of idolatrous script that had been found in the Middle East. And as a matter of academic interest, they, they published it. In letters to the editor, there was a guy that was all upset. You, you printed, you know, this, this ancient demonic text and, and kind of like, you know, how many demons may you have unleashed? It's helpful to remember what Jeremiah said about idols. Uh, he kind of mocks them. You know, you go out, you cut up a piece of wood, you decorate it, and then you bow down in front of it. Said Jeremiah said, don't be afraid of them. They can't do anything good. They can't do anything evil. Idolatry mm -hmm. is evil, but your statue there, um, yeah, yeah. It, and like, if there's a flood, you got to save it. It can't save you. It's, it's just... The, the, the evilness is thinking that it has power, mm -hmm. attributing the power of God to this little thing that has no power at all. And in coming back then also to ailments today, if somebody today is mute or deaf, um, if they're mute, I would take them to the doctor and see if you can find out that something could be done about their hearing. Um, as when Paul recommended to Timothy to take something for his digestion. You know, he didn't just say, you know, let me cast out the demon that is within you. Just. So going back to the question that we had, uh, what do we say about demon possession? Whatever happened to demon possession? I can see someone asking that just out of a curiosity. Um, you know, th there is a cessation of miraculous power. First Corinthians 13 addresses that. Acts 8, we've talked about that not too long ago. Uh, in, in our discussions. Um, but I can also see how that question can come out of a concern that if demons are active in my life, what do I do about it? Uh, it, it sounds like what we're seeing biblically is that the way that demons are active is through evil influences, not the possession. And the way to defend against it would be like 1 John 4, where you test the spirits. You make sure that the, the doctrine you're following is true, uh, that you be aware of how uh, sin has a greater hold on us than we sometimes admit it does. I don't know. Would, would, is there anything else you guys would want to say to someone who's concerned about demon influence in their lives? Yeah, I think also going along with that, um, realizing just what, what Jesus taught concerning that, what we said, that, that Jesus and his work has disarmed that power. Uh, mm -hmm. he, he's, he's dethroned Satan. Uh, trust in Jesus. He's the reigning king. He's defeated every enemy, and the last enemy to be defeated is death uh, mm -hmm. in 1 Corinthians 15. And so there's there's no worry that we should have of these, these forces over us if, if we have Jesus with us. Uh, and that's really what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Um, I think this is a good passage to kind of think about in connection to all of this because he brings up rulers and authorities and spiritual forces. Uh, in Romans 8, verse 31, he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written? For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And this is relating to our discussion today in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, That's a powerful promise uh, that we have. And it's because of the work that Jesus has done. He has died. He has been raised. He is reigning. And he's disarmed those spiritual forces. Now, again, like what we've been saying throughout, that doesn't mean that we should just not be sober and not worry about it. There are still enemies that are trying to war against us, trying to recapture us. But with Christ with us, they won't be able to just steal us away without our control. Um, We have the opportunity and the ability through Jesus's work and power to test the spirits, to train ourselves with godly wisdom and to be delivered from the spiritual forces of evil. Yeah. That's really comforting. Uh, and it's just more with this concern. There's Jesus, Jesus either did have power over the demons or he didn't. He either did conquer the devil and took the keys of death away from him, took out the sting of sin, or he didn't. And so passages like Romans 8 can be incredibly comforting. Uh, however, we figure out uh, demons and their influence, we know that Jesus wins. And if we're on the side, there's, there's nothing really to fear. So long as we follow. Yeah. Cool. Anything else you guys want to say about that before we wrap up? All right. Uh, Well, that's all that I think I know what to say about that. So uh, thank you for that question to our audience. Uh, Go ahead, Scott. 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 I was muted. I said something. Sorry. Just a reminder that things that scripture doesn't reveal, scripture doesn't reveal. And so we can go by here's what the scripture says. And sometimes we can uh, put together some hints as to what that suggests, but it's helpful to, you know, bear in mind that when we're making conclusions or assumptions based on what a text says, there's some conclusions there and perhaps some speculations. Uh, But in the long run, too, there are things that are revealed and there are things that are not revealed. not every single thing is revealed. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to God, but what is revealed was revealed to the Jews so they could do it and with us as well. Amen. All right. Well, thank you to our audience um, for the question. Again, we want to invite uh, our audience. If you have other questions or thoughts that you'd like us to discuss from the scriptures, you can submit those to us at BibleQuest.tv. And we'll be happy to talk about that. Uh, That's why we do this program, because we want to talk about what you want to talk about and uh, be able to answer your questions from the Bible. Um, And so we'd like to do that so you can reach out to us in that way. Uh, But that's all we have for this week. We'll plan on seeing everyone next week. God willing. I hope you enjoyed today's Bible quest. If you'd like to learn more about God's Word, click the free Bible studies button at the end of this video or go to BibleCourses.online. Let me repeat that. It's BibleCourses.online. There you'll be able to choose from a variety of Bible courses that are available on demand at no cost. Thank you.